tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny in All That Air, the Philip Larkin Society Podcast. My name is Lynn Lockwood. My guest today is the wonderful writer David Quantic. He's a novelist, journalist, critic, scriptwriter. He's written for everything, music magazines, TV shows. He's pretty much written everything, including a book called How to Write Everything. He won an Emmy for his work on Veep, and he was also part of the writing team for The Thick of It and Harry Hill's TV Burp. David Contex joined us today to talk about Brunette Coleman, who is... Philip Larkin's writer alter ego from when he was a young man in his 20s at Oxford University. And he spent about a year writing very seriously in the character of Brunette Coleman. And Brunette Coleman is a kind of middle-aged, feisty writer who produces novels for schoolgirls. And these novels weren't published in Philip Larkin's lifetime. They were finally published in 2002 with an introduction by Professor James Booth from the Society. And David Quantic joins us to talk about, in particular, Brunette Coleman's essay about writing, which is called What Are We Writing For?, which was written in 1943, in which Brunette, or Larkin, examines the process of writing schoolgirl fiction and some of the structures and his ideas about how you should go about that. He really, really loves the form of school stories. And as as one learns from what, what are we writing for, we learn that he's a, he's, a, he's an expert on it and he's passionate about it. And I recognise that from interests of my own, that, you know, when you're into something, you're, it's that feeling when you're into something that's a bit obscure and possibly comical, um, his defence of it is really rational and cool and it's cloaked in comedy, but there's, he's not mocking the books, even when he says they're not very good quite often. When he says at one point in the essay, you know, and I was forced to ask myself, why are so many of these books no good? It's a question that genuinely concerns him. Yeah, and he wants to look for the sort of the answer to that. Like you say, it's, it all comes from a sense of like a genuine exploration of the genre. And he knows it well. I mean, the quotes here, the footnotes, he's, he's read a lot of these books. And it's certainly not for the sex. You have to go a long way to find anything erotic in some of these books. Um, and he's about 21 when he writes this as well. So... It's very interesting because it is an important stage in his life. It's not teenage nonsense or childhood obsessions. He's an adult. He's going through a period of great excitement and change, trying to find his feet as a writer and as a reader. And this is not, I would say, an embarrassing stage of his career that should be swept under the carpet. It's a very interesting and very unusual aspect of his character, which produce some variable writing but i think this essay i've picked on this rather than the stories the stories are beautifully done the stories are done so close to copying they're almost not pastiches he puts in the old hint of overt sexuality and comedy from time to time 
but you could read them believing that they were the real thing. And the essay, What Are We Writing For?, I think is a brilliant essay. Mm, yeah, and I was reading Andrew Motion's um, account of uh, Larkin writing this time, and I was quite surprised that he said he believes it's uh, facetious. He said determinedly facetious opinions about writing in that essay. Yeah. And I think there is, a, like you said, there's a tone of comedy and there's the whole interplay at the beginning between Jacinth, you know, the secretary and, and Brunette. And there is like that, the humour in there. But it's not facetious humour, I don't think. No, he's writing, he's writing in character and it's a nice little touch, the secretary and Brunette and their relationship with a touch of comedy. And he writes with a lot more ease than... The later books, I mean, personally, I've always found his published novels quite difficult. Mm. Very dour, not much humour, a lot of discomfort, and a bit of strain. And in the unpublished books, which are also included in this volume, mm. the unpublished extracts, a lot more of that. And he's not writing in his comfort zone, and there's a lot to be said for not writing in his comfort zone, but the Brunette Coleman novels and poems are definitely in his comfort zone, and they flow so well taken in taken on their own terms they're beautifully written he's clearly enjoying himself he knows what he's doing as well mm. uh, i don't know if amos ever wrote any of these stories but i doubt that amos is would have had that kind of experts touch to them no i think uh, james booth's view is that uh, amos yeah would have just seen them as soft pornographic stories really just sort of sniggery stories whereas I know Booth talks about the kind of pastoral side of the school stories you know and and that sense of uh, kind of elegiac side of the passing of time and you know in the in the, the, the school in August James is, is was really moved when I was talking to him about that poem and about you know the empty playgrounds and uh, even that last line about if I think it's even gym mistresses grow old and he took that as really you know a very sort of poignant line so there is a lot of sensitivity in in the writing do you think maybe he was trying to find a bit of an escape you know a bit of an escape from sort of oxford study and, and world war ii of course as well um i don't entirely like to speculate but i think it's mm. definitely escapist fiction and i think very often from my experience of being a writer and other writers very often the stuff that you do to escape, the stuff that's not your day job as a writer, is the most fun place to be. Yeah. You know, it always amazes when you look at when you look at the the famous professorial writers at this time. Look at C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I'm sure they hadn't. You know, their interest in children's stories is. I'm rambling a bit, but I expect that Tolkien, the Hobbit, did not come naturally to him, and he'd rather have been writing about. Anglo-Saxon languages, and Lewis would probably be more comfortable with a few Christian metaphors, but mm. their, best, their best work, their lasting work, as these extraordinary children's stories. And another thing I wanted to talk about was that what are we writing for is, is a response, of course, to George Orwell's essay mm. about boys' stories, and it's interesting to compare the two, because Orwell's is, is a very doer piece of work that doesn't really acknowledge any merit in boys' stories, doesn't take any pleasure in them, and it's mostly concerned with the way that they perpetuate the public school version of the class system. Um, whereas Larkin's piece is completely the opposite. It's, it's impelled by love of these stories, by 
a real knowledge of how they work. Um, Orwell doesn't appear to have thoroughly read the stories that he talks about, um, whereas Larkin clearly has close chapter and verse all the way through. It's interesting because it's a very it's a very positive essay. It's a very funny essay. It's quite bitchy at times, but it's really it's really it's an entirely charming piece of work. You know, I would have I would have put this in in one of the I don't know what the word is, one of the major anthologies of Larkin's nonfiction, rather than mm. sort of hidden away in this slightly embarrassed uh, collection. Trouble at Wibble, Wibblegate, Willow Gables and other fictions. Yeah, it, it is strange. I agree how it's just been put to one side. I mean, I suppose with when I was rereading George Orwell's essay, although I agree it is dour and it is obviously, it's got the political focus which Larkin doesn't have. But I think it's quite an achievement that he he puts boys' stories into so many different contexts in terms of like, you know, the, their literary history and their heritage. And he, he kind of has a look at the character types and the and the plot structures and things like that. Because there's a joke in uh, what we're writing for is they joke about it, don't they, that it, it must have taken him a long time to write. Because for a, young, for a wrong, um, young writer like Larkin, it's quite daring really just to... But I suppose it's typical of young younger people just not wanting to show too much deference to you know who somebody will have seen as the older generation of writers. I suppose now's the time, you know, that sort of arrogance of youth. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, well, I, think, I mean, he's still he's still Oxford. He's still separate from the world, you know. Yeah. Orwell is a big towering media figure at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like it when he says Mr. Orwell or whatever his name is. <laughs> I mean, he's. He's great in this character. I mean, you're absolutely right. That, um, there is a real sense of freedom here. He's being brunette Coleman. He's being a presumably middle-aged, um, almost certainly lesbian, female girls' fiction writer, and he's really enjoying it. Yeah, and that is astonishing when you when you remember he was, what, 20, 21, 22 years old and, you know, like I say, at Oxford. And brunette Coleman gave him a chance to explore quite a few different genres, and I thought, you know, that made me think of you and and your writing career that sort of spans every kind of writing. And uh, Larkin as a young writer wanting to just explore, uh, you know, there's a there's a bit of autobiography, isn't there? He writes a section of Brunette Coleman's autobiography, and he writes poetry, two no- well, one and a half novels, um, as well as this kind of apologia as well it's a it's an astonishing like range of writing to produce in a, in a year or two whilst he's actually trying to finish oxford and get get his first job and things like that it's an amazing time frame and you're right writing writing in character has been liberating for so many people even to the extent of you know in popular music the beatles running out of ideas it's like oh let's pretend to be sergeant pepper's band mm. and write like that so many people once they've lit on a character, it's very liberating, again, that word, to pretend to be somebody else because then you don't have to worry about what people think of you because it's not you. I mean, he took these really seriously as well, didn't he? You know, I think he was even hoping they could be, uh, Trouble at Willow Gables could potentially be published and he typed it up very neatly. But, I mean, the, the kind of time passed on and he moved on from it. But, you know, his friendship with uh, Diane Golance. Uh, the daughter of Victor Gallant, the publisher. I think there was a sense he was hoping he could even get these published. So he was taking it seriously. And that's yeah. an amazing start to a young man's writing career in the 1940s. It's extraordinary just 
a parallel world where Larkin has done this is, is kind of hard to imagine, but you can see why he stopped. But um, the fact that he did it and sustained it and it was something he really cared about and he did have to justify it to his friends as well, you know, dirty stories, which they're not in that sense, or, you know, just having a laugh. It's an awful lot of effort for somebody who claims to be just taking the mickey out of something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you think about his um, rules for writing? Because he kind of sets out some rules. You know, when he talks about uh, children need to struggle through books and the, uh, you know, the sense that children should be given difficult books to read and that you shouldn't write for your audience in a wider sense. You shouldn't identify an audience and try and write for them. He seems to kind of go against that. I think he's absolutely. I think he's absolutely right. I think that there's a certain amount of tongue in cheek in it, but you can really hear the authentic. I've got to hear the authentic mm. voice of Larkin when he's talking about um, good writing and saying you should not use American importations like Betcher and OK and Face Up to. Mm. You know, I think that's Larkin talking as well. Yeah, there's a lovely bit when he complains. He said there shouldn't be any birth or death yeah. in a girls' school story, and it's like, yeah, he's absolutely right. Yeah, no husbands, no fiancés. He understands. I mean, there's a famous quote from Kingsley Amis that when he went to visit Larkin in um, at a, a common room, at, I think Belfast, where Larkin was, he suddenly saw that this was a whole closed world of this university common room that had never been written about. And the same thing applies to the to the world of girls' schools. Mm. You know, there have been novels which have had settings in boys' public schools that have expanded out into the real world, you know, an awful lot of Edwardian fiction um, had people starting off at boys' public schools and then going on to conquer the empire and so on. Mm. But there's none of that. Girls', girls school fiction was a com- is still a completely closed world. You know, those stories still exist. I think they've recently updated to the chalet school, I forget which, or one of the Blightons, anyway. Yeah, I was told the other day that the BBC had made a production of Mallory Towers, apparently. That's right. Yeah, I've not, I'd not seen it, and that really surprised me. That That's Eni Blyton, isn't it, from the 50s, I think, Mallory Towers? That's right, and yeah. I think uh, Martin would absolutely disapprove of it because it's very diverse and all that kind of really? thing. Really? Quite rightly up- yeah, yeah it's been quite rightly updated. Uh, those stories set in very enclosed environments are still really popular. We've been watching... Um, Orange is the New Black, and I, I think it, it started to remind me of some of the things that Larkin said about school stories. It feels like a kind of school story, you know, and when at the end of uh, What Are We Writing For, when he starts to talk about the ideal book or the kind of the idea of producing the epic school story that takes the girl's story from the first day of school right until the last day of school and watching Orange is the New Black made me think, yeah, there is that, uh, you know, you follow the journey, particularly of one character and all her, the, the different friendships and the different schemes and adventures she gets up to and, you know, from uh, uh, starting in prison and, and leaving prison. And I thought, yeah, and, and also his comments about villains, making villains properly villainous and not having, not having them just suddenly turn soft in the middle, I thought was good advice if you're trying to create a villain. Oh, his, his female public school villains are fantastic. But coming back to what you're saying about the, the public school story that starts on day one and ends when they leave, that's Harry Potter. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a mixed school, but, you know, J.K. Rowling was very smart because she she chose a real, whatever trope or whatever the word is, 
of children's fiction which cannot be beaten, which is the closed environment. And also what I love about Hogwarts is that there's a lot of food, exactly as there should be in a public school story, Yeah. which yeah. Larkin mentions here. Constantly, the pre-erotic nature of food, as I think Larkin would probably call it. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting that that echo, because you know, a lot of J.K. Rowling's work is sort of semi-conscious echoes of more famous historical books. Mm. And Hogwarts, yeah, I mean, it's a sexless world, Hogwarts, fortunately, but it would be interesting what Larkin would, to see what Larkin would have made of it. But yeah, this essay is extraordinary. It probably could not be bettered now. As a guide to writing girls' school stories, you know, I would, if you, if you wanted to do that, this would be something I would direct you to. Yeah, there are. There's so many useful <laughs> rules in there. Uh, I like his rules about not uh, going into instruction, so not lapsing into, you know, giving advice on how to hem curtains or something like that halfway through. So I assume, you know, it, it must be something he'd picked up on in books that girls' stories at the time were perhaps a bit instructional. Um, yeah, I think there's a line he said, like, he suggests that the author has got a file of cuttings from the girl's own paper and just leans over copies out some advice on, as you say, hemming curtains, and then having filled up a couple of pages, gets back to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's references to, uh, you know, Dickens and Matthew Arnold. I mean, he places them in a literary context, not just within a sort of genre context, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He, he knows He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows his history. He quotes, he has Jacinth calling that Samuel Johnson used to sit reading Macbeth until he was afraid to go to bed. If a child of reasonable intelligence has nothing but Shakespeare to read, it will read Shakespeare, which is not a conventional view of children's literature at all. Yeah, and so in the 1940s, I mean, children's literature was coming into its own as a as a genre, wasn't it? But I don't know how, how far it would have been seen as uh, talking down to children. My dad's, the books that my dad had were still there was still an awful lot of the public school annual and three stout fellows. And yeah. he actually had a book called that. But yes, I think, I think children's fiction was still in the grip of that world. I mean, the Narnia novels are set. I think they start in the, in the second world war and then all that is blurred. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think the great generation of the children's literature that a lot of people, my age, I mean, my late fifties grew up with starts around about wartime. But yeah, you've got Macefield and his fantastic fantasy stories. Mm. Mm. But I'm not entirely sure, you know. I think things would have changed after the war because that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. I know in uh, what George Orwell com complains about in his essays about how things became very, um, they didn't change, they didn't develop at all in the boys' writing. And he makes that comment that he can't believe it was it would have been the same writer that wrote the like Billy Bunter for 30 years, but it actually was, wasn't it? It was the same writer who did who did this stuff. Right, it is. It's, and it's extraordinary because I found the letter that Frank Richards, on his real name, wrote to Orwell. And it's interesting because it's everything that Larkin got accused of but wasn't. Really? It's virtually... Oh, it, it's, a, it's a very good letter. It's a very stout defence of his work. But it does say things like, Mr. Orwell complains that I make foreigners look stupid. Well, foreigners are stupid. I'm paraphrasing a bit. Yeah. But yeah, he was, it was unsurprising to say that he was a bit reactionary. Yeah. <laughs> but 
but, you know. Just talking about a presentation of foreigners, and I think, you know, when Larkin says in What Are We Writing For, he says, I don't, you know, I don't want to write about foreign places. I, I want to write about England. And I think that's a, you know, it's a really kind of it's joyous, you know, that he wants to present the beauty of England. It, you know, it doesn't seem, he, he seems to suggest that uh, putting these foreign places into school stories is is just, it's not the world that you should be writing about. It's just there for sort of decoration. If you start to take people off into jungles and things like that, it, it wrecks the genre. Yeah, I mean, he completely understands. It's like, I mean, I'm a bit of a fan of classic detective novels and there's the famous rules of detection in the classic murder mystery that, you know, the reader must be able to guess who the murderer is. There mustn't be anything silly, but also the fact that classic murder mystery it's not just nostalgia that means that every Agatha Christie mystery seems to be set in 1935 it is a world you know there's a reason that film noir novels seem to circulate seem to always look like the 50s and it's the same with the girls school it's kind of it would be pointless to write a girls school story set in a school now because it would keep breaking the rules you could do a great one but it wouldn't be a classic girls school story so in a way, so that this is a genre really that's that's come to an end in in the UK anyway. I suppose that kind of very closed. The, I don't know. There yeah. may be places where you could still write something like this. I mean, it would have to be. I'm contradicting myself. It would have to be adapted. I mean, with the Harry Potter novels, to use that as a basis. Mm. One of my favourites in that in that line as well as the Flashman novels, oh, which yeah. are essentially yeah. dark, dark, vicious parodies of the Tom Brown stories. Yeah, um, Donald Fraser just seems he's just out to completely trash the world of Matthew Arnold, which he does successfully over yeah. several novels. Yeah, I mean, you can do it, but it never, you know, it's like when you see all these new Agatha Christie novels written by very talented writers or new P.G. Woodhouse novels written by very talented writers, they're all good, but they never work because they're not, I think you actually have to be that writer. There's so many, so many novels and characters that are closed worlds, like James Bond. You know, lots of people have written quite good James Bond novels, Kingsley Amis included, mm. but they're not the same as Ian Fleming ones. And I think, I don't know what I think, but I think the classic girls' school story, as Larkin talks about it, probably couldn't be written now. I think it would have to be updated or a different perspective, a different angle on it. Yeah, because that, that world just isn't there anymore. And, yeah, like you say, like the BBC updated version just had to, has to be more diverse and we have we're in a different political environment now every every remake has to be an update because you just can't you know you'd raise questions all the time i mean one program that i like in a kind of weird way is called the midwife i don't watch it much but i like it because it's it looks exactly like a cozy program but it's actually a way of smuggling what a lot of people call you know, a left-wing political agenda in it because mm. it deals with issues of race and sex and je- all that kind of thing Yeah, in a show that looks exactly like a load of jolly people sat around being very old-fashioned, but it's not. It's interesting, whereas you look at something like Downton Abbey, which is hugely popular and is completely fake. Yeah. Because Downton Abbey is a show, it's a show based on a show, which was upstairs, downstairs, based on an, a world. It's lovely, and it's, very, it's actually quite boring, Downton Abbey, but... Um, <laughs> The Maggie Smith character is always saying things that are supposed to be hilarious. And you think, that wasn't actually funny, which is actually quite realistic. 
because members of the aristocracy and royal family are always being quoted as saying hilarious things, which turned out to be not hilarious. <laughs> but I'm digressing slightly, but yeah, you can do, when you do historical stuff, it's kind of a choice between Call the Midwife or Downton Abbey now. And both work in their way. You know, I have never watched an episode of Downton Abbey. <laughs> It just puts me off. It just puts the whole Maggie's. I, like I love Maggie Smith as an act, actor, but you know, there's that kind of coterie of uh, British actors. You know, Judy Dench and Bill Nye and all, all those kind of people. Like they're all brilliant actors, but when I have too many of them in one place, I find I get a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm always slightly puzzled that there are two movies where Judy Dench plays Queen Victoria, <laughs> and she also plays Elizabeth I and. Yeah, I mean, the Downton Abbey moment for me is when they reached the end of the series, and it was 1914, and they were all stood in a marquee for a birthday party, and the weather changed, and Lord, whatever he's called, Downton, literally said something like, a time of change, the storm clouds are gathering. <laughs> You're like, no way. Because literally a storm was coming, and the war was about to start. Yeah. And, it, you know, you, you're expecting this to go, the storm clouds are gathering, like literally outside, but also <laughs> the storm clouds of war. It's such a lazy programme. You know, in uh, uh, What Are We Writing For? Um, Larkin talks about having a sense of writing the ideal book. Does that come into your head at all when you're writing for yourself, you know, when you're writing novels and things like that? In the sense that writing the book, by the ideal book, if that means writing the book that you are trying, that is in your head. Mm. Yeah, because I, I wrote a horror novel called All My Colours a few years ago, and that's one of those things where I didn't know if it was a good book or not, if it was a good idea, but I knew what the idea was. And I knew how to convey that idea, and I did. So I'm happy with that book. Mm. It's like, say you want to paint the house, and for some, and you want it to be blue with a white door and you know black window frames for some reason. If you start painting the house and it's blue, but you've painted the door yellow instead of black, you're not ha- for some reason you're not happy. Yeah. So I did, and there are you know other people have different ideals. Um, I saw a Woody Allen film where Gertrude Stein was made to say something like. You know, writers have a duty to provide an ideal of the world. It's like, oh, that would be quite a hard book to write if everything you do has to present an ideal for people to live by. But people have tried to do that. Yeah. But bit, I mean, with Larkin, all I can say is when you look at poems, the fact that he wrote them slowly and he wrote often quite a lot of short poems, was that he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to say or he was trying to find a way to say it as clearly as possible. And one reason he possibly didn't write a lot was he probably he often thought he didn't have things worth saying, but mm. the things he did have worth saying, those poems are astonishing. Yeah. And, you know, I think in his case, I'd rather have 30 ideal poems than 300 that are quite entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, he was definitely, um, he appeared to be somebody that, like you say, would only write if you felt he had something to say. And, and when that kind of left him, Sort of, you know, in the in the sixties into the seventies, well, in the seventies, it was devastating to him, wasn't it? That that feeling like he'd lost having anything to say yeah. and having to just kind of walk away. I mean, he did write poetry up until the late seventies. I don't think he wrote a lot towards the end of his life, but it, yeah, it did seem like it was a kind of it just a bereavement. It just gone from him, which must have been terrible because I think most writers would go, "Oh well, 
and just write something terrible and hope nobody noticed. Yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting to me with the novels because you can see that he, it's almost as though he desperately wants to be a novelist, but he's kind of going against the grain of himself as a writer. Mm. There are these books that are hard going, and I may be, you know, a bad judge because I may not be very good at reading novels of the period, but they just seem to bang their heads against a wall, stop. You see him starting again, doing revisions. Yeah. This collected volume is fascinating to see him at work. And as I say, I don't have a very high regard for his published novels because they're tough going. He seems to be, it's almost like he seems to be willing himself to be despondent and serious. Mm. Whereas in his best poems, the despondency comes out, flows out. And that's one reason that I really enjoyed reading the Brunette Coleman novels was that they do just flow out whatever you think of them. It's just like pouring milk to read them. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because he's writing them with a passion and an excitement for that subject, isn't he? Like you say, with Jill and A Girl in Winter. It, yeah, uh, he, he had that sense that being the novelist was, was the great thing to be and poetry was somehow second best. Um, it's bizarre. It's fun, isn't it? I mean, because, of course, you've got a world being an Amos because I'm a huge Amos fan, but he was the opposite you know, he wanted to be a poet probably more than he was a novelist, but he was a brilliant novelist mm. and an okay poet. Yeah. Do you have um, a favourite poem by Philip Larkin? Is it one that you go back to regularly? or I always go back to Obard. Yeah. I absolutely love Obard. Um, I was going to say I know it's a popular one, but they're all popular. It's just, it's just I really love the the shape of it, the sort of, gathering gloom followed by the sort of explosion of misery and then there's kind of telephones crouch get, getting ready to ring it's like ah there's a tomorrow <laughs> yeah yeah it's a terrifying poem it's a terrifying honest poem and it's brilliant the way that it captures what it's like to be up at four o'clock in the morning mm. feeling yeah. absolute feeling of despair and self-loathing combined with the fact that you know we are going to die Mm. And then this kind of, I mean, it's interesting because in, oh God, I can't remember, an Arundel tomb, mm. um, when he puts in the bit at the end, you know, the almost truth. Well, with Obard, he puts in an actual truth, which is kind of like, life does go on. Maybe not for everyone, but it's not always going to be four o'clock in the morning. It's just a beautifully written poem. So it has a real shape to it. And yeah, that's probably my all-time favourite. I know you you suggested uh, looking at Femme Damnée, and that does have actually quite a lot of the you know the subsequent Larkin. There's there's lines in there that do just the description of the home um, reminds me of Home is So Sad, for example, with the uh, kind of artifacts around this couple. Um, the you know the woman that's tried to make her life kind of look nice. You know, cushions from Harrods and the the marble clock. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very it's an interesting it's a very visual poem. It's an entirely visual poem. Mm. It sort of zooms in, you know, through through the curtains, through the front door, takes a quick tour of the house, looking out yeah. the windows, yeah. and then just into this description of Rosemary, bereft in the front room. Um, obviously, something terrible has happened, and then this beautiful silence at the end. So it's it's an extraordinary. Would you like me to read it? Yeah, yeah, I'd love you to read it. Uh, I will give it a go. Femme Damnée by Brunette Coleman. 
The fire is ash. The early morning sun outlines the patterns on the curtains, drawn the night before. The milk's been on the step, the guardian in the letterbox since dawn. Upstairs, the beds have not been touched, and thence builders' estates and the main road are seen, with labourers, petrol pumps, a green line bus, and plots of cabbages set in between. But the living room is ruby. There, upon cushions from Harrods, strewn in tumbled heaps around the floor, smelling of smoke and wine, Rosemary sits. Her hands are clasped. She weeps. She stares about her, round the decent walls, the ribbon lost, her pale gold hair falls down, sees books and photos. Dom, the rhythmic life, Miss Rachel Wilson in a cap and gown. Stretched out before her, Rachel curls and curves, eyelids and lips apart, her glances filled with satisfied ferocity. She smiles as beasts smile on the prey they have just killed. A marble clock has stopped. The curtain sun burns on. The room grows hot. There, it appears, a vase of flowers has spilled and soaked away. The only sound heard is the sound of tears. So it's kind of a melodramatic and melancholy poem, mm. sort of sad and full of colour. And there is, there is a slight parody tone to it, but it's one of those things where you're writing a parody, or he's writing a parody, and he's like, oh, actually, I'm not taking the mickey out of this because I love this. Yeah, it's very, it's a really kind of subtle poem, um, and you have to get the story from it, don't you? You take the story, the relationship between Rachel and Rosemary. Absolutely, yeah, and there's, it is, it's a Victorian painting. It's a woman in distress mm. looking at a photograph of someone who is presumably looking a bit self-satisfied and fierce. Satisfied ferocity is a nice <clears throat> phrase, but yeah, mm. it's just beautifully done, the you know, the books and photographs described are all about dance. So you imagine, <clears throat> in Larkin, you imagine some kind of pictures of women in leotards disporting themselves in a manner that would please him. And, yeah, it's a lovely poem. And you're absolutely right. It would definitely fit in with his his so-called mature work. Mm. And in a lot of ways, it's better than some of the early poems, if memory serves me mm. right. It would be an interesting sort of counterbalance to something like Mr. Bleeny. When you look at like a man's world and the room of Mr. Blini and then you've got the woman's world here and how that's described. And the description of the landscape reminds me a bit of Whitson Weddings, you know, when he's looking out of the train window and he can see yeah. he's just listing the fields and the, the back gardens. That painterly uh, or, or the photographic eye listing items, the right items, which kind of build up the, the visual picture for you. He's very good on this. He's very good on description. Just a very gentle touch, not like a sort of betterment thing where everything is uh, has point and meaning. But you know, plots of cabbages set in between, suggesting a kind of plonky mundanity. <laughs> but also, he's by and large a sympathetic writer about women. You know, there's the odd lapse, generally in later life, when he's perhaps the drink has got to him and he's a bit more bitter. Mm. But this is at no point, a mo you know, this isn't a comedy poem and it's not a mocking poem. It doesn't make either Rosemary or Rachel into sort of misogynist stereotypes. No. And I think that's the thing about all the Brunette Coleman stuff in that he does feel comfortable writing as Brunette Coleman. He does 
you know, he may pretend he's doing a literary exercise, but he's not. He's writing something that he loves to write with no shame or embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, uh, presentation of women, um, Rachel Gallatly was on um, a podcast uh, a couple of months ago with me. Um, we're both in the Larking Society together. She always cites afternoons as a, a poem that means a lot to her because of the presentation of women in that. You know, the women that have had their lives pushed to one side, the women that are kind of trapped by domesticity, but there's a tenderness to it and a sensitivity to it, even though it's not Larkin's world. Larkin doesn't live in the world of, you know, young mums with babies and washing lines and photo albums and things like that. But he was, he was very empathetic and he was able to put himself imaginatively into these lives. And, yeah, when, when a writer can do that, you know, he can't... Like you say, there are, of course there are things in his letters and his behaviour towards women... You know, it's a bit surprising at times and, you know, you can interpret it however you want or make the judgments that you want. But when he can write things like this as well that are sincere and that are kind and honest and, and empathetic, um, it certainly counterbalances those people that do just label him as a misogynistic writer. Um, I mean, this podcast gets about 50-50 listenership, men and women. I think our membership is... So I, I don't think women are put off in so much now. So that says something. I think, yeah, I mean, it's talked about a lot, the whole thing of Larkin's, you know, private personality versus his, you know, the content of the poems. Mm. And I think a lot of the truth about Larkin is in the poems, to be honest. Mm. You know, I think he, that's him turning inwards and revealing his sympathy for people rather than the spectacularly aggressive and unpleasant things he's known to have said publicly and yeah. in private correspondence. Um, and we can, you know, go into all that, but I I prefer... And there's a dog. There's a dog. <laughs> just to kill it. I've never even known a dog. It's obviously just straight in. No, I'm joking. But right, back in the room. Um, yeah. There is whatever these things are defined as a feminine side to Larkin, and you know everyone who writes is writing about themselves because they can't be anyone else. So when Larkin writes about women, he's writing about a side of himself that he sympathises with women, he sympathises with his characters because they are him as well. Thank you, Lynn. I've had a lovely time. Oh, good. Talking to anyone tonight, but it's just—it's <laughs> nice to talk about something. I mean, it's—it's it's just great that you got in touch because I'd bought Trouble at Willow Gables fairly recently, mm. and it's one of those things you think, "Gosh, I would like to talk about this to somebody." Yeah, it's not the kind of thing you can bring up on the bus, really. Police no. might get involved. <laughs> Thank you so much to David Quantic for giving us his time. COVID-19 means this has been a little bit delayed in being recorded. We were originally planning to meet in Manchester exactly on the weekend of lockdown, which is a real shame. It would have been lovely to have done this face-to-face, -face, but we eventually did it over the phone. So it was really great to talk to him, and we're hoping to see a lot more of him at the Philip Larkin Society. It's absolutely amazing. His knowledge about Larkin and his passion for Larkin is absolutely brilliant. Just wanted to say a quick hello to some of our new Twitter followers. We're being followed by the William Golding official account, which is great. 
and the, the Talbot brothers, the Edward Thomas Fellowship, Mohammed Abraham, Angelique Van Drunnen, the Stephen Joseph Theatre Shop. Now, I don't know if the Stephen Joseph Theatre Shop know this, but I actually used to work for the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough many years ago in the early 90s when it was in its old building. So it was lovely to see them following us. Thank you very much. And Joseph Riley, who calls himself teacher, poet, rugby fanatic, owned by a cat. This podcast is produced by Simon Galloway and the music is The Horns of the Morning by the Mechanicals Band. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please send me an email or contact us on Twitter. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go over to the Philip Larkin Society website, become a member, buy some merchandise. It'd be lovely to see you. The horns of the morning are blowing, are shining. The meadow is wet with the coldest of June.